spring of 2014, uh, I was in Portland, Oregon, and I was working with Christ and Youth. Uh, it's the same organization that, that puts on our summer conference that we take our high school students to. And we were doing a, a weekend event called Believe. And Believe is for middle school students. Uh, is a, it's a 24-hour jam-packed whirlwind of Jesus and fun and awesomeness. And it is, it is crazy. And I, I got to work on a couple of different tours with CIY. And, um, Believe is uh, you walk into a venue on Friday morning, you set the whole thing up, you put on the conference from Friday evening through the day Saturday, and you tear the whole thing down on Saturday evening. It's crazy. Very physically intense. It's a lot of labor. It's a lot of work, and there's hardly any sleep, uh, a lot of caffeine, and a lot of prayer. Um, but we, we put on this event, and I uh, needed to be back home on Sunday to preach, and so I uh, jumped on a plane. I was flying from Portland to Dallas, where I would jump on a connection from Dallas to Joplin. And so I'm in the airport. I'm dead tired. I'm walking onto my flight. I, they booked me on, a, on American Airlines, and so American Airlines has assigned seating. This is why I love Southwest, because if you play your cards right, you can sit wherever you want. But American Airlines has assigned seating, and I was seat 23B. Um, I don't know if you know anything about the alphabet, uh, but A comes first, and then B, and then C. So some of you are already ahead of me. Walk to my row. There's row 23. There's a lady sitting next to the window in seat A, and there's B and C are open. B's in the middle. C's open. I'm thinking, thank you, Lord. You've smiled on your servant today. Uh, I'm going to take the aisle seat. And so I sit down, and I'm, I'm ready to zone out. Like, I, I'm putting in my headphones. I, I'm ready just to relax and try to fall asleep and, and get some rest before a, a big Sunday the next day. And you know, you can't really fall asleep until the plane takes off. I've seen people do it, but it's not my spiritual gift. And so I'm sitting there, and I'm kind of, you know, opening my eyes every so often, and then she starts to walk down the aisle. This tiny little girl, uh, probably late high school or early college, and, and she's walking down the aisle. She's kind of scanning every seat, looking at her ticket, scanning every seat, and then we lock eyes. You've done this before, right? You lock eyes, and, and I'm sitting in her seat, and we both know it, and I'm just like, I'm in your seat, aren't I? said, yeah. And so I got to get up and then sit down right in the middle and bookended by two ladies for a three-hour flight. Um, man, so exciting. And so there I am uh, sitting in the middle, and, and we get out on the tarmac, and we're getting ready to take off. And the girl who had just sat down next to me on my left begins to just freak out. I mean, have a panic attack of all panic attacks. She's hyperventilating. She's got a bag that she's blowing into and out of. She's just having a terrible time. And I'm thinking, like, this, is, like, this isn't real. Like, it, it was almost like too much, you know? Like, it was so theatrical, it's like she'd rehearsed this moment. It was just so crazy, and I'm just like, okay, I'm trying to ask her if she's okay, and I'm like half playing pastor, and I'm looking over this way, half super unamused passenger, because I'm on a flight with three hours with Miss Hysteria, and so I'm just trying to, I'm trying my best uh, to talk her through it and to help her and we get out, and the plane starts to take off, and she, you know, grips the, the arm rests, and, and then as she's going, she's like, oh, and she reaches in her backpack, pops a couple pills, and just kind of chills out. Like, that's all it took? You know, like, should have started that an hour ago. And so, so she begins to relax a little bit, and I think, okay, maybe I can relax a little bit. And so I, you know, I, I lean back as much as you can, which the recline in the airline seat is like from here to here. And so, you know, I, I do this, uh, and I lay back. I'm trying to go to sleep, and I just can't, right? I just can't do it. And so I was like, okay, I may as well be productive with my time. And so I pull up my laptop. I put the, the seat back tray down. I get my Bible out, and I, I've got to preach the next morning. I've got most of a sermon written, but let me go back through it and, and make some tweaks and those kinds of things. And so I start working on it. And I learned that the lady next to me is a Mormon, which is just interesting when you're writing a sermon. And so I'm thinking, okay, what's she thinking about all the stuff that I'm saying and thinking through? Does this line up with what she thinks? The girl who had sat down next to me is just looking over my shoulder. I mean, just staring exactly at what I'm writing. It's not, like, that's not good airline etiquette. Whatever someone else is working on, you're not supposed to be looking at. And I'm like, yeah, yeah I'm, stop it. Try to write a sermon. Don't look over my shoulder. And she just won't, she won't have it. And so... We begin this conversation, and she says the question that, she asked the question uh, that no pastor on an airline wants to hear, so what do you do? <laughs> and so I begin to tell her, well, I, I'm a pastor, I got to preach a sermon tomorrow, and so I'm working on it, trying to get it 
finish, and she just launches into her life story. People do one of two things when they find out you're a Christian. They either say nothing or they tell you everything. Uh, and she opted for the second choice and began to tell me everything about everything that ever happened to her. And it's actually a really sad story. Her name is Danny, and Danny grew up in Romania. And when she was in Romania, she was orphaned as a small child. She spent a long time in an orphanage in which she was repeatedly abused and molested. She was eventually adopted and brought to the States and thought maybe this would be a clean slate early in her elementary years. And um, the family that she was adopted into had several other family members. She was again She also had lots of experience with the church. She'd spent some time in a Christian church and had a terrible uh, experience there. And she said, I don't think I could ever go back to church based on how I've been treated because, of course, you know, I'm a lesbian. So I'm thinking, great, got Miss Mormon over here, I got a lesbian over here, and I'm trying to write a sermon, and they're both watching every word I write. Perfect. And so Danny and I had this long conversation, and we're you know, an hour into it. We talked about all different kinds of things. I tried my best to apologize and to say different things and to walk her through God's word and all different kinds of things. And she just eventually, she stopped and said, listen, I know the Bible says being gay is a sin. I know that this lifestyle is sinful. I've read the Bible. I've read those parts of the Bible. I've been in that youth group. I've all those kinds of things. But she looked me in the eye and she said, where do you stand on homosexuality? And then she followed it up with this. Am I going to hell? Danny, we met an hour ago. Don't ask me if you're going to hell. That's not fair. Like, what, what am I supposed to do with that? And I'm willing to bet that many of you have been in a similar situation. And I, I'm willing to bet that for most of us, talking about this subject, like we can talk about the principle of God's word, but for many of us, this is personal. For many of us, there's a family member or a close friend who is gay. And you've had these tough conversations before, and they've looked you in the eye and say, where do you stand? That's not an easy question to answer. It's definitely not an easy question to answer with a stranger that you just met on an airplane. But this also isn't an easy sermon to preach. I'm going to stand up here this morning, and half of what I'm about to say is going to offend half of you in the room. And the other half of what I say is going to offend the other half of you in the room probably not going to make many friends today, but I'm really confident and I'm really comfortable with the message that I'll preach this morning, and here's why, because it's not a whole lot of Joel. What we're going to do today is simply walk through God's Word. We're going to take a close examination of what does the Bible say and how should we then live. And so, friends, hear me in this. If you disagree with something that I say this morning, you're not disagreeing with Joel, you're disagreeing with Jesus. And that's something that you've got to wrestle with. And at the end of the day, I will not be judged by people in a pew, but by a God who is over all things. And what I say to you this morning, it's fully my intention not to be shocking, not to create divisiveness, but simply to be faithful. What does the Bible say? And how should we then live? I want to make a few disclaimers this morning. First of all, if you're with us today and you are not a Jesus follower, you're not a Christian, and this is your first time in church in a while, what a weird place to start. I'm so sorry. This is not normally where, this is not zero entry into Christianity. But I hope, I hope that you will, as an outsider for now, get to look behind the curtain and see a church who's trying their best to follow Jesus. Secondly, if you're with us today or you're joining us online and you're same-sex attracted, and this is an issue that you wrestle with personally, first of all, hear me in this. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for the way the church has treated you. I'm so sorry for the way that gay people have been ostracized by Jesus' followers. I'm so sorry for things that have been said to you as if they were coming out of the mouth of Jesus, that are not true. You are no less worthy of God's grace than any of the rest of us. You are no less loved by Jesus than the rest of us. God wants you here. Jesus wants you with him. Finally, 
I'm making the assumption this morning that those of us who are gathered in this room and we call ourselves Christ followers, that we are submitted to the authority of God's word. That we say this is our standard. And ultimately this is what we will stand on. And so, in order to do that, we've got to submit to Jesus as our Lord. It's impossible, absolutely impossible, to in 30 minutes or so get into every aspect and facet of a very complex scenario and situation. I told somebody after first service, we're going to go about an inch deep in a 30-mile pit. (laughs) There's so much to this that I won't be able to say. And so I want us to look at this morning as a conversation starter, not as a fully in-depth exploration of everything that we could get into. So my goal today is to help us answer two questions because I think these are the most important questions for us to answer as a church in this moment. Number one, what does the Bible say about homosexuality as a sin? We're going to look at at all the passages. We're going to answer that question as best we can. And number two, and, and this is an important question, I'll explain this here in a minute. Can two people of the same sex commit to a lifelong, consensual, Christ-centered, self-giving, monogamous union? Is that possible? Also, before we go any further, I want to highlight a few resources that have been really helpful to me. There's some people who know way more about this than I do. There's some people who have way different experiences than I do. And there's some people who are far more intelligent and more studied than I am, and I have learned a lot from them. And I want to highlight some of their books. The first one is this. It's a book called People to be Loved by Preston Sprinkle. Preston uh, has a PhD in New Testament, and he is a really, really gifted communicator and author. He runs the Institute for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender. Number two, what does the Bible say about homosexuality by Kevin DeYoung? Kevin, again, has been a voice in this arena for a long time. Gay Girl, Good God by Jackie Hill Perry um, is a really good resource. Is God Anti-Gay by Sam Alberry, And The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert by Rosaria Butterfield. Those last three are all written by same-sex attracted people who have chosen to submit themselves to what they believe the Bible teaches. And I think their words are incredibly valuable in this conversation. I I would encourage you to consult those resources. Much of what we'll talk about this morning has been shaped by their thinking. And so rather than taking time to quote every single person, like if you're an English teacher in here, I'm going to fail on my notations this morning, okay? Uh, You can see my bibliography though later. But much of what they've said have shaped what we're going to talk about this morning, and they've done really good work. First thing I want to say as we enter into a very complex situation is this. I think the best attitude and approach that we can take as people with genuine questions about the issue is to start with this admission. I might be wrong. I might be wrong. It's been, maybe for some of us, a long time since we've even said those words. If we want to be faithful Christians who live in a fallen world, I think our posture is really important. And one treacherous thing that we tend to do as Christians is we go to the Bible not with a question, but with a position. And with a fully formulated position, we go to the Bible and we say, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? We won't actually ask the right question. Because in reality, we're beginning with a position. Here's what I believe about homosexuality, and let me now prove it with the Bible. People who have, and asked, who have and ask genuine questions don't have predetermined destinations. I talk about this with our students all the time. If you want to know the Bible really well, you need to ask what? Good questions. Gosh, you guys failed. Okay, back upstairs. We got work to do. If you want to know the Bible well, you need to ask good questions. In other words, humility, not certainty, is the key to good theology. If we want to wrestle faithfully with this, we need to be humble people. And as we approach this genuine question of what does the Bible say about homosexuality, we need to first start with an admission. I might be wrong. Because I don't want to make the Bible say something that I've believed. I want to believe what the Bible says. There's two different things. Rosaria Butterfield in her book that I referenced earlier says this, where everybody thinks the same... Nobody thinks very much. 
I might be wrong allows us to let God's word lead us, not simply live under the lid of our own predisposition. Good theology and humility go hand in hand. It means we have to re-examine familiar things with fresh eyes. Maybe we'll end up drawing the same conclusions, maybe. But what stands in our way of asking genuine questions is fear. It's this fear that we'll find our own firmly held convictions will crumble and we will be left without a framework to understand the world and who we are within that world. Things that we've believed for years may get flipped on their heads. And we have to be okay with that because the Bible teaches that perfect love casts out all fear. And if we love God and we believe fully that God loves us, we don't have to be afraid of anything. We can fully pursue the answers to difficult questions. So don't let fear get in the way of being faithful. I'll admit to you that even in these past few weeks as I've been studying and preparing to preach this message, my own perceptions have shifted. My own understandings of certain biblical texts have changed. And we'll get to more of that later. But if we're to hold God's word as authoritative, then we must live in accordance with its instruction. In order to submit to authority, you have to have humility. So we need to humbly look at God's word together. I also just want to briefly address this. This is something I talked about with Danny on the plane. That sexuality is not central to identity. Who you sleep with is not who you are. God's created you for so much more than that. God has redeemed you, ransomed you, bought you back for so much more than that. Sexuality is not central to identity. Certainly it is a piece of the pie, but we have been told by culture it is the entirety. Sexuality is a small sliver of who God has created you to be. And you can be fully who you are in Christ without even thinking about sex or sexuality. So the first question is this, what does the Bible say? That's the million dollar question. That's the question that we all want an answer to. And some of us would say, the Bible very clearly says that being gay is a sin. I'm willing to bet that if you are a person who holds that position, if I asked you to give me chapter and verse of every place in the Bible that it talks about homosexuality, I don't know if there's a person in the room who can do it. You might be able to rattle off something about, here's you know, Leviticus and yada yada, but I'd be willing to bet that most of us haven't actually studied this subject before. We've been taught what to think, but we really haven't figured out how to think. There's a large portion in the room who want me to stand up on stage and give you three little anecdotal statements so that next time you get into this discussion with someone who thinks differently than you, you can have these pushbacks and then you can go home feeling like you won the argument and sleep well at night. But I love what Sprinkle says in his book where he says, I refuse to give thin answers to thick questions. Learning what to think and not how to think is dangerous. It means we become susceptible to whatever our ears want to hear. And Jesus says to his followers in Matthew chapter 10, he says, be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. Knowledge is knowing what, but wisdom involves knowing how you know what you know. And if we're going to be faithful people in a fallen world, we have to have wisdom. So under this idea that the Bible is very clear on homosexuality, there are six passages total that speak about homosexuality and the wrongness of it in the Bible. Genesis 19, 1 through 9, Leviticus 18, 22, and chapter 20, verse 13, Romans 1, 26 and 27, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 1 Timothy 1, 10. Friends, that's six passages in a really big book. What we have to understand is the Bible is not primarily preoccupied with condemning the behaviors of someone who's homosexual. And yet, the church has been. The church has used the Bible to beat that nail. There are two different views within Christianity regarding homosexuality. There are people who call themselves Christians who would fall into one of these two camps. And they're known as affirming and non-affirming. Those in the former would suggest that the Bible is inclusive and affirming of same-sex relationships and unions in accordance with the sexual ethic found in the Bible. Those who are non-affirming, and this is the 
historical view of the church and still what I would uh, suspect is the widely held view of those of us in the room today would say that homosexual behavior of any kind is condemned in the scriptures. So let's take a look. Let's briefly examine these passages that we just listed, these six, and look at what does the Bible say. Now, there's a lot of text this morning. And again, I referenced the sermon notes within the Church Center app. That's going to be your best friend, not only in this moment, but as you walk out of here today thinking, now, what was that passage again? And we just don't have time to read all of this in its entirety. And so I'll be summarizing a fair amount. But in Genesis 19, we read that famous story of a place called Sodom. And there's a man there named Lot. And Lot is living there with his family. And Sodom is a notoriously sinful place. And the Bible says that two angels come to visit Lot, and Lot welcomes them into his home, and then all the men in the town come and they pound on his door and they say, where are those two men that just came to visit you? Bring them out. We want to have sex with them. And Lot counters by saying, "Uh, I'm not going to do that. Here are my two daughters. What? (laughs) What's going on in the Bible? Like sometimes we just read stuff like, what is happening? But then the Bible says that the angels prohibit that from happening. They're able to push the door shut and no one is harmed. So here's the question. This is where we get the famous word sodomy. It's where we've decided what that means. But after reading this text, we have to ask the question, does Genesis 19 condemn loving, consensual, monogamous, gay relationships that include sex? No, probably not. The error of those in this passage in Sodom was their demand to, and there's no better way to say this, their demand to essentially gang rape two individuals who appeared as men. We would deem this unconscionable and unethical under any circumstances. Forced sex on anyone is not okay. And according to Ezekiel chapter 16 verses 49 and 50, here's what the prophet says, Sodom's sins were pride, gluttony, laziness, while the poor and needy suffered outside her door. She was proud and committed detestable sins, so I wiped her out, as you have seen. Sodomy, according to this biblical definition, is not gay sex, but being stuffed full of food and comfort with no concern for the billions of people on the earth today living in grinding poverty. This passage from Ezekiel is in rebuke of Jerusalem, whom the prophet refers to as a prostitute and says Sodom's sins aren't half as bad as those of Jerusalem. In fact, whenever Sodom is mentioned elsewhere in the Bible, homosexuality is never singled out. In fact, it's never even clearly mentioned. And Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10 through 17, talks about the sins of Sodom. But it refers to the leaders of the people of God as leaders of Sodom. Within this passage is embedded the famous learn to do good, seek justice, help the oppressed, defend the cause of the orphans, fight for the rights of widows. It's wholly a passage about not ignoring the needs of others and living in the pride of your own insulated tower full of all your comforts and conveniences. Isaiah 3.9, Jeremiah 23.14, Lamentations 4.6, and even Jesus subtly makes a reference in Matthew chapter 10. No mention of homosexuality. I'm not trying to build a case for or against anything in this moment. I'm just simply pointing out that this is what the Bible says, and maybe what we have been content to believe isn't actually what the Bible has taught. If we're going to make a case for a sexual ethic built on the authority of Scripture, we need to be honest, sincere, and full of integrity as we engage with the material. I'm willing to bet not many of us read the passages about Sodom throughout the Bible and are crippled with conviction about our idolatrous materialism, our cancerous greed, our love of money and possessions, and our little regard for the poor. According to God's word, that's the sin of Sodom. And not many of us would go there and experience the conviction. I mean, mean, truly, honestly, how many of us contribute more than just a fraction of our material possessions and wealth to those who are in need? Genuinely. How many of us do that? And yet we'll turn around and use a biblical passage to beat someone over the head about a sin that it's probably not even referencing. According to this definition, I'm just as guilty of sodomy as anyone else. Please don't rip that statement out of context and put it on the internet. That's not a, that's not a quote that you post on your social media after a sermon, please. 
but it has messed with me this week. This isn't all of what the Bible has to say, so this isn't where we stop. Leviticus chapter 18 through 20. This passage uh, is often borrowed by both sides in both the affirming and non-affirming camps to defend their position. Those on the affirming side would say this is archaic and antiquated and it is ultimately referring to things like male cultic prostitution which no Christian is advocating for. But according to all the most recent scholarship and those who are well studied in this and those who hold opinions on both sides of the affirming and non-affirming debate, this position is a myth and has more or less been put to death. This is not the context or tone of the the Levitical text. The general consensus is that Leviticus 18 through 20 are not talking about exploitative sex, rape, or prostitution. Those on the non-affirming side have used this passage to condemn same-sex attracted people, but we've used it more as a bludgeoning tool than anything else. What does the, the Levitical text say? Is it archaic and antiquated? There's many other laws within Leviticus that we don't regard anymore, and aren't Christians just cherry-picking when they pick apart Leviticus using it to prop up their agenda? Leviticus tells people not to eat shellfish or to wear clothing of mixed fabrics or to get tattoos. Friends, I'm breaking two of those laws right now. I'm willing to bet you're breaking at least one. If you're eating shellfish, that's just weird, okay? Please don't eat shellfish in church. But how is it a defendable position to say that God's law forbids homosexual practice when we don't adhere to other laws found in the same book? Well, Leviticus needs to be considered as somewhat of a library. And all the scholars would tell you that Leviticus 18 through 20 is one literary unit. It's intended to be understood as something read in its entirety. Just like Matthew 5 through 7 is known as Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's one complete work. This passage is is to be interpreted and understood together. And this literary unit condemns many different things. They've been on the screens for a while. Incest, adultery, child sacrifice, bestiality, theft, lying, taking the Lord's name in vain, oppressing your neighbor, cursing the deaf, showing partiality in the court of law, slander, hating your brother, making your daughter a prostitute, turning to witches or necromancers. And then it includes this instruction to love your neighbor as yourself. Friends, we don't discount or dismiss any of this today. In fact, you don't even need to be a Christian to dismiss these things. We would be appalled, even by today's standards, to discover that any of these things in the lives of those around us. If we witness something like this within our community, it doesn't matter what you believe about God. These things are abhorrent. Incest, bestiality, prostituting your own daughter. We'd all shake our heads and say, no way. Laws in this section that we consider no longer binding, things like mixed fabrics, shaving the edges of your beard, or sacrificial laws, we find to be fulfilled in Christ because they pertain to religious practice, not moral principle. These were ceremonial laws for God's people. But ceremony and morality are not the same, nor nor should they be conflated. All of the laws pertaining to sex in this section in, in Leviticus we consider to be authoritative still to this day. Incest, adultery, bestiality, prostitution are all still condemned. Again, not just by Christians, but by our culture at large. And in order to honestly engage with this text and the historical position held by the church for thousands of years, we have to recognize that categorically, homosexual practice fits into the moral principles category and not the religious practice category. So does Leviticus still hold up as a text that is authoritative for us today? Yes, I believe so. There's no passage in the New Testament that reverses this Levitical law. This kind of thing is done when what we talked about last week, Peter has a vision and God says, get up, kill and eat. This food is no longer unclean. There's nothing like that when it pertains to laws regarding sex in the Old Testament. God isn't up in heaven thinking, oh man, oh, I forgot to have Paul write that part of the Bible, right? He's no fool. God isn't like tripped up by this. What he instructs, he expects. There are a few other passages littered throughout the New Testament that deserve our attention. Because if we're going to ask the question earnestly, we must engage with all the material. But I think these two are very cut and dry. The first is 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Here's what it says. Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. 
Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or are abusive or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is what Paul writes to Timothy, who's pastoring a church in a place called Ephesus. 1 Timothy 1, 10 and 11. The law is for people who are sexually immoral, who practice homosexuality or are slave traders, liars, promise breakers, or who do anything else that contradicts the wholesome teaching that comes from the glorious good news entrusted to me by our blessed God. What's extremely important about what we recognize here in these passages and elsewhere is that homosexuality isn't singled out. In fact, it's just placed right alongside all kinds of other things like greed and deceit. Paul doesn't say any of these sins are more or less grievous to the heart of God. Paul doesn't say any of these sins disqualify you from God's grace. And yet, we do. God forgive us for when we've singled out a sin to prop up our own religious pride and neglect our own deep-rooted sin struggles that grieve the heart of God. I want to address Romans 1 as well, but we'll have to get to that in a little bit. Genesis Chapters 1 and 2 is where I believe we find the best answer to our second question. Again, this is the wordy one, so bear with me. Can two people of the same sex commit to a lifelong, consensual, Christ-centered, self-giving, monogamous union? We call that marriage. We have to go to Genesis 1 and 2 to see what God created and what he intended in order that humans would flourish. And so let's look just briefly at Genesis chapter 2, verses 24. Here's what it says. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother... And hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Some translations use the word united. They're united together and become one flesh. What does that mean, that two people become one flesh? The logical conclusion that many of us might draw is that because there are, hmm, I think the best way to say this is, because there's anatomical complementarity between a man and a woman, I think we all know what I'm saying. Does that help you avoid a rough conversation on the way home? Um, that that's what it means to be united into one flesh. I believe this does play a role, but just like most other things within this conversation, I don't believe that's the whole of what it means to be one flesh. In fact, not even close. This is one slice of a pie. The primary meaning of this one flesh idea is not fundamentally sexual. The idea of being united does not demonstrate sexual union primarily but two people forming a new family. Preston Sprinkle in his book outlines it this way. Flesh, in the Bible, almost always refers to a kinship bond, this uniting of flesh, not male and female sexual encounters. In Genesis 29, 14, Laban says to Jacob, you are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. One man saying it to another. In Judges 9, 2, Abimelech says to Shechem, I am your flesh and your blood. In 2 Samuel 19, verse 12, David says to the elders of Judah, you are my own flesh and blood. Ruth clings to Naomi and is united to her. It's the Hebrew word, debach. This does not mean that they have sex, but that they have a familial kinship, two people beginning a new family together. So if we're going to deal with what the scriptures say with integrity, we must engage this one flesh idea for what it is. And it does not inherently rule out homosexual unions. But again, this isn't all of what the Bible has to say. We need to go further. Just before this, in Genesis 2, 18, I think is where we find the most clear expression of God's intention and where we should form our theology on this subject. Genesis 2, 18 says this, The Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. This word helper is the Hebrew word ezer. And it's almost always used in the context of military help. And it's most often applied to God's actions towards Israel. So if you're a woman in the room and you're a little bit offended by the idea of being a helper to a man, you shouldn't be. You should wear this title like a badge of honor because it's what God calls himself. Let me just tell you this. Um, I have three kids. I have a two and a half year old daughter. We have twins uh, who are eight months old. 
my wife uh, got to get away for the first time in a long time this past weekend and go spend some time with a friend of hers. She stayed over overnight. And so that meant I had the kids uh, Friday and then most of the day Saturday by myself. And it was uh, not easy. Uh, and when my wife walked in uh, on Saturday afternoon, do you know what it felt like? God's miraculous deliverance, okay? It was amazing. That's the kind of help, a power that people don't have on their own. Now, those who are affirming would argue that Eve is a suitable helper because she's human. Because after all, Adam has just spent all this time with animals. And God has looked at each one of them and said, this is not a suitable helper. And so those in the affirming camp would say, Eve is a suitable helper because she's human. And ultimately, this idea in Genesis 2 is condemning not homosexuality, but bestiality. But we need to dig further into what the text says. See, God uses another word when he says fit or suitable to describe this kind of helper. It's a compound word that's only used here. God invents a new word to describe who Eve is. It's the Hebrew word, kenegdo. And if it were simply Eve's humanness that made her a helper, then the word ke, meaning like, would have been just fine. The text would have read, I will make a helper ke him, like him. But there's a different point being made. Adam needed not just another human, but a different sort of human. And so this second half of the word, again, two different words can join together, K meaning like, and negdo meaning opposite. It's a different sort of human, a female. God uses a new word to describe this. Eve is, is human and not an animal, which is why she is like Adam. But she's also male, female, excuse me, and not male, which is why she is different than Adam or opposite him. And this is what God calls a suitable helper, someone who is the same but opposite. This is a very important distinction as we enter into this conversation. And so the conclusion from Genesis chapter 2 is that three things seem to be necessary for marriage according to God's sexual ethic. Number one, both partners need to be human. Both partners need to come from different families as they begin a new family together. But finally, both partners need to display sexual difference. Genesis 1 ripples with a creative display of diversity that complements. God and creation, light and darkness, earth and sky, sun and moon, land and sea, humans and animals, male and female. All of these things that are different from one another, but that complement each other well. Sprinkle says this in his book, creation is not uniform, but a beautiful display of differences interacting with one another. So there's the Bible study. Now what? Well, we've made our series title Swipe Up. And we've talked about this idea that there are influencers online who have the unique position to propose certain things to us. And so we're taking a look at some biblical characters who should carry influence in our lives. I believe the the person best suited to give us wisdom on how to live faithfully in a fallen world is Jesus. Final question that we would likely ask and need to answer is, well, what does Jesus say? Where does Jesus stand on homosexuality? That has to be the most important question, right? You ready for this? He doesn't talk about it. Jesus never mentions it. He doesn't allude to it. It's not in his syllabus. Jesus' silence on the subject certainly means he's indifferent towards it. If it were a big deal, he would have addressed it, right? And those are some of the things that people in the affirming camp would say, and they would draw conclusions according to that. We shouldn't rush towards, con- towards conclusions without context, because Jesus also doesn't speak about incest or rape or bestiality. So should we assume that his silence on those things means he is indifferent and therefore affirming of those behaviors? I don't think so. Remember, Jesus lives in and ministers in Israel. Most of the people he talked to were Jews, and only rarely did he engage with Gentiles. And same-sex relationships were not a matter of debate within the Jewish tradition. It's not surprising that the topic never came up. It wasn't something that would have been discussed naturally. And if Jesus had endorsed homosexuality, he would have been the only Jewish person in more than a thousand years to do so. Jesus goes out of his way to express that he's not come to abolish the law, 
but to fulfill it. He upholds the law. And in areas of sexual tension in Judaism that were debated, Jesus takes a more strict view, not a more lenient one. When Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, hey, here's what adultery actually is. If any of you looks at another woman with lust in your eyes, you've committed adultery. That's strict. When he's challenged on divorce and he's told by the religious leaders, listen, Moses just required a written statement, a decree that you could divorce your wife, no questions asked. Jesus takes a harder stance and he condemns that line of thinking. Jesus does not become more lenient with the law, but helps us understand what it's intended to accomplish. The number one thing Jesus was accused of when he was on earth, though, was, excuse me, <coughs> associating himself. That's a, you shouldn't say associating as you're choking. That's, that's grounds for disaster. Associating himself with notorious sinners. Jesus committed a cardinal sin according to the religious leaders of his day. He did things that ticked people off who thought they knew God. His grace towards scandalous people was appalling. His radical compassion and love for those whom society was content to marginalize was stunning. Jesus met with an outcast Samaritan woman who was living promiscuously, and he extends grace. Jesus kneels down in the dirt with a woman who was caught in the act of adultery, drug out of her home by her hair into the square in the city, and he kneels down in the dirt and says, I don't condemn you. Jesus develops a friendship with a woman named Mary Magdalene who was a prostitute and invites her to follow him before any behaviors or opinions had changed. Jesus went to parties with people who were hated and was accused of being a drunkard. Jesus called Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector, not just a tax collector, a chief tax collector, down out of the tree and insisted on being a guest in his home. There was probably no more hated person in the world than Zacchaeus. He was seen as a traitor. He was a Jewish person working for Rome. And he was hated to the utmost. No one wanted to be associated with him. According to everything that Jewish people believed, he was a sinner. And he made his living sucking the life out of other people. Jesus sat down at a table with him and shared a meal. Jesus loves without footnotes, disclaimers, or asterisks. And friends, if you're going to be a Jesus follower, love is required. Some of us are familiar with Pirates of the Caribbean when Keira Knightley's character comes up on the boat and she invokes, invokes the code of the pirates and they kind of look at her and chuckle and say, what do you think of them more as guidelines than actual rules? <laughs> and if we're tempted to think about love as a guideline, we're off base. Love is required if you're a follower of Jesus. It's not suggested. It's not encouraged. It's required. Jesus says this to his disciples, the world will know you're my disciple because of how you love one another. When Jesus is asked what's the most important commandment, he says this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And when he's pressed on the idea of who is my neighbor, Jesus tells a story about a Samaritan person who helps a Jew. Two people who could not be on further ends of the discussion. In his book that I referenced earlier, Dr. Sprinkle says that gay is the new tax collector. The degree to which we've ostracized people who are same-sex attracted is an atrocity. Gay people are people to be loved, not people to be fixed. Friends, sinners drew near to Christ, and it wasn't because their behavior was affirmed. It was because their humanity was affirmed. When young non-Christians were asked, 91% said the first thing that comes to mind when they think Christians is anti-homosexual. The next two perceptions were 87% said judgmental and 85% said hypocritical. Nearly all of these people who were polled, these young people, had experience, first-hand experience with the Christian church. This isn't just a statistic that exists out there somewhere in other places in the world. One night at CIY Move this last summer, we sat down in a circle. We began to unpack our day and talk about the things that we found were important in several students, several students in your church who were going to go home to your houses 
who you know, who you are related to, who you taught Sunday school to and volunteered at VBS for, have said, our church is anti-gay. That breaks my heart. And I hope it breaks yours. But here's what I know. That breaks the heart of God. Shame on us if that's what we're known for. That's not the way of Jesus. It's not what Jesus teaches. It's not what he instructs. It's not who we're called to be. Jesus does not affirm homosexual unions. Don't hear me say that. But Jesus leads with love always. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. He does not say, if you keep my commandments, then I will love you. And we've twisted that around. This love is neither permissive nor conditional. We have this big fear that if we show radical Zacchaeus-shaped love to LGBT people, then we will be guilty of affirming everything that they do. And that's not the posture either. So finally, I mentioned we'll look at Romans 1. And let's do that quickly. I'll summarize some of this for us and we'll just kind of walk through this together. This is Romans 26 and 27. Again, used often to condemn homosexual behavior. Here's what it says. That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men. And as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. Paul continues this line of thinking. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They're backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning, and they disobey their parents. Some of you regret that I told kids to leave the room. They refuse to understand. They break their promises. They're heartless and have no mercy. And then here's how Paul begins chapter 2, continuing this same thought. You may think you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad, and you have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourself, for you who judge others do these very same things. And we know that God and his justice will punish anyone who does such things. Since you judge others for doing these things, why do you think you can avoid God's judgment when you do the same things? And then here's verse 4, and this is so important. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? Some translations say, can't you see that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Anyone ever told a lie? Make a habit of being deceitful? Anyone wrestle with greed? Cheated someone? Steal money from your company? Cheat on your spouse? Man, homosexuality is never singled out as the sin that's lower than all others. It's just not. It's not what the Bible teaches. So if we're going to be faithful with this, if we're going to be faithful with this, we need to wrestle with our own sin as much as we do with this question. Back to our question that we began our time with, the question that Danny asked me, where do you stand on homosexuality? Well, I just want to make my stand where Jesus sits. Jesus sits with sinners. Jesus welcomes them to the table. And Jesus invites them to follow him. No prerequisites, no qualifiers, no clean yourself up and then come find me. No, if you obey my commands, then I'll love you. Jesus demonstrated radical compassion and love towards people who religious people said, there's no way. I want to make my stand where Jesus sits, and if I'm going to hitch my wagon to anything or anyone, it's going to be Jesus. Hear me very clearly. Jesus does not affirm homosexual unions. My thinking, my theology on this hasn't shifted. I'm in the non-affirming camp, and I'm willing to bet you probably are too. I think that's where Jesus is. He affirms and upholds the Old Testament law, and yet, yet, there's this magnetism to him. He drew countless sinners towards him as he affirmed their humanity, not their sexuality. I'll never forget Danny saying to me, I know being gay is a sin, but I could never go back to church after how I've been treated. And I just wonder, 
if someone had invited her to the table and sat with her like Jesus demonstrates, if that would still be her opinion. If we want to be people of grace and truth, and I think we have to be to live wisely, to be faithful people in a fallen world, if we want to be people of grace and truth, then we have to submit to Jesus as both Savior and Lord. So there's people in all different parts of the spectrum this morning. We're wrestling with different aspects of this conversation. Again, there are people in the room or online or in your family who are struggling with this identity, who are same-sex attracted. And just hear me in this. Jesus is Savior and Lord. If you want to follow him, it means you give all of yourself to him. But more importantly, because I think this is most of us, if you're a Jesus follower, love is required. If we're going to make a stand on anything, I want to make it where Jesus sits. Loving sinners, no matter where they are, because we ourselves are sinners. We're just as bad. We have no excuse. The invitation of Jesus is to follow him. It implies that he's leading us somewhere. Jesus doesn't say, I love you so you don't have to change. He says, come follow me. We're going somewhere. It's better. It's different. It's new. And it's for everybody. Let's pray. God, this is a deep, deep, deep subject. There are even more questions on all of our minds than there were before we began today. God, what I pray is true of this church is that we would never sacrifice the truth of your word. We'd never let it go. But God, what I pray is also true is that we would never stop loving people along the way. You invite all of us to follow means that we move from where we are now to where you are going. God, forgive us for when we've singled out certain sins. We've said things that we claim are on your behalf that are not true. God, forgive us for when we've singled out certain people and said that they're not capable of receiving the grace of God. God, would you work in us to reveal your great salvation, the way that you're redeeming and rescuing us from our own despair and sin. And would that compel us to live compassionate lives, full of the radical love of Jesus, full of grace and truth, submitted to Jesus, who's both Savior and Lord. Help us to make our stand where Jesus sits. In his name I pray, amen.